0: At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question?
1: Now, what is the appropriate time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism living tissue over a metal
0: endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Hello, ladies and germs, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers to tease out the habits, routines, favorite books, whatever it might be that you can apply to your own life and test as soon as today, tomorrow. These are the tools and tactics that count, whether they come from the world of entertainment, military, or other and there are many different buckets of other. This particular episode was a blast to record. It was recorded in front of a 2,000-plus person crowd at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, which is one of my favorite conferences and uh, also was the tipping point for the 4-Hour work week way back in 2007. If you're interested in the creative process of a famed author, if you're interested in jump your own creation, creativity, note-taking, list-making, or how to handle hard emotions, this episode is for you. We cover a lot of ground. My guest is Cheryl Strayed, at Cheryl Strayed on almost all the socials, and I will keep this short because I have another intro which I recorded live. So, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Cheryl Strayed as much as I did, and as always, thank you for listening. <laughs> Good afternoon everybody, you guys, re- you guys ready for a show? All right, so this is the first live Tim Ferriss show in Tejas, in this fine city of Austin, so thank you all for coming.
1: It's the first one? It is. I didn't know that, I'm so yeah. honored.
0: And I am so honored to have Cheryl Strayed here. You may know Cheryl. Hi everyone, And thank you. for those who don't know Cheryl, I'll give you a little bit of context and then we'll dive into it, and I will double check with the organizers, but I think we have between 60 and 90 minutes. I have a 60-minute countdown, but I think we have up to 90, so if that's too long, those are the exits over there. Okay. Cheryl Strait is the author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, Wild, one of my favorites. The New York Times bestsellers Tiny Beautiful Things and Brave Enough, which has a permanent home on my coffee table at home, in fact, and the novel Torch. Her books have been translated into 40 languages around the world, probably more. At this point, Wilde was chosen by Oprah Winfrey as her inaugural selection for Oprah's Book Club 2.0, and was made into an Oscar-nominated film starring Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dern. Strait's essays have been published in the Best American Essays, The New York Times, The Washington Post Magazine, Vogue, Salon, The Sun, Tin House, and elsewhere. Strait is the co-host along with Steve Almond of the WBUR podcast, Dear Sugar Radio, which originated with her popular Dear Sugar advice column. She lives in the lovely city of Portland, Oregon. Please welcome Cheryl Stray.
1: Thank you. Thanks everyone.
0: And there are so many questions I would love to ask, but I thought I would format this a little bit differently. Because I know that there are so many questions you all want to ask so I am actually going to base this entire conversa- conversation around questions that you all have submitted via Facebook and Twitter and use those as jumping off points So I thought we would start with one from Twitter and this is Charlie Charbonneau I may be pronouncing it incorrectly the question is or one of several is what's it like to know tiny beautiful things saved lives including mine Oh yeah. it's
1: I- that's amazing thank you charles um it's right up there with just a very small handful of the most extraordinary experiences of my life actually um i know the power of literature um, because books have saved my life too and it was always my intention from the very beginning when i when i first when i was like six and learned how to read and and felt the the beauty and the truth that, that words on the page can make. Um, I wanted to join that club. I wanted to be somebody who would, would make that kind of beauty and truth in the world, too. Um, but I didn't know if I ever would, would be there. you know. And I didn't know what would be, what would be the mark um, that I would reach that I could say, yes, I did that, too. And I will say, uh, it's that thing. It's people coming up to me and saying, your book changed my life, your book saved my life. And so it's really the highest praise I've ever gotten from uh, a reader in any, in any way.
0: You mentioned that books have saved, changed your life. What are some of those books? Are there any particular books that come to mind that have had a huge impact on you?
1: Yeah, so many books. Um, well, one of the things, I think I wrote this in Wild, that, that I felt that books were my religion. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I, I do think that there are all kinds of ways that I, I get spiritual solace or a sense of connectedness with others or a sense of um, comfort or consolation. But I would say that the books has, have been the, the, the main one. And, and the first book that came to mind when you just asked me that is Dalton Trumbo's um, novel Johnny Got His Gun. Have, have any of you read that book? It's sadly, I think, not read by a lot of people now. But for some reason, I came upon this book when I was about 14. I don't know how it got into my hands, but it did. And I, um, you know, it was a book that was written, I think, in the 30s, and it was, you know, this this book that um, really about a reality that was so far from my own. And yet, when I was this teenager, um, I really could feel like the power of narrative, the the power of inhabiting. The life of another human and I do think that you know all kinds of art gives us that that um, ability to inhabit another human's experience, but none do it so well as books. That is literature's thing, right? Subject, subjective truth. We get to be inside the mind of that young woman who's hiking the Pacific crest Trail when she's twenty six or the 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 man who's you know in the midst of a divorce, whatever that situation is, we get to be in it. And so you know I do think that books have the power to not only remind us of our own humanity, but the humanity of others too. And that's, for me, a spiritual experience. That is what divinity is. That is what God is to me.
0: So you mentioned inhabiting another's experience, and that that actually segues quite nicely to another question, which is from a friend of mine who will remain anonymous. When one shares so much of their experience publicly, especially perhaps through writing, people who don't know you feel like they know you and often want to pour their hearts out to you. So how do you connect and engage with a large audience without getting drawn into others' struggles in such a way that your time and energy are compromised?
1: It's hard. I wonder if you also.
0: I struggle with it. <laughs> yeah. I struggle with it tremendously, mm-hmm. well, particularly when people come to me with extremely heartfelt, uh, serious, and sometimes urgent problems. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure you've run into that quite a bit yourself. How do you think about contending with that? Well,
1: you know, I, I don't have the final answer yet. I think it's in progress for me. But I will say what I've learned in these years since I began writing the, the Dear Sugar column and Wild, and even with my first book, Torch, um, it was read by fewer people than uh, Red Wilde. But I still had a whole batch of people who were coming to me um, you know, after reading that book, saying, you, you told my truth. Um, you said something I feel and no one else has ever said it. And um, that's a really powerful kind of intimate connection. And I think that, um, that for me early on I felt like okay we share this thing so now we have to share more. We have to correspond, or email each other, or be friends, or yes, I have to meet you for coffee and talk about it. And you know, that just became unsustainable. You know, with, with Torch, you know, the, the five people who read the book, I could meet them for coffee. Um, but with Wild, that became unsustainable. And, and what I realized, too, is that I already gave them the best thing I have to give them. You know, that that book, Tiny Beautiful Things That Saved Somebody's Life, or the, the wild that somebody saw themselves in, like, I gave them that thing already. And any further interaction with me will only be a reiteration of what I tried to achieve in those books. Is my microphone messing up?
0: It could be either of our microphones, although I guess mine is attached to my head, so I think it my, might be. It might I think be. my
1: necklace is messing with it, so I'm uh, going to put it backwards. All
0: right, no problem. I'm
1: sorry you don't any longer get to see the beauty of my
0: necklace. but So as context, could you describe <laughs> what just disappeared behind door number one? But okay. what is the necklace?
1: So what this necklace is, and I was telling Tim before we went on stage, that you know I tend to be, one of the writing assignments, uh, the, my best writing prompts um, that I give when I'm teaching writing is I talk about um, the use of objects and talismans in narratives. I think that it can be a really um, powerful source of story. And for example, if I made you all right now um, take out your keychain and then write the story of every key, you would all have written something really interesting and something very telling about your life. And so when I do things like this, like talk to Tim Ferriss you know, um, before you all, I always want to have like a talisman of what I hope happens. And so this necklace that I that just made disappear, what it is is that it's a zipper that's, that's just unzipped, and it's just glued to a piece of felt. Let me show you. See, so it's an undone zipper glued to a piece of felt. Bought at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and um, I love the I love the idea of unzipping. You know, I think a lot of people they think of going on stage and having this kind of formal interview as the time that you're going to um, be guarded or try to present a certain public face. And while we're doing that, I think I'm also hoping we get something beneath the surface that we, we can sort of unzip in some ways.
0: Me too. So let's 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 get amongst it. <laughs> uh, this is. Well, I shouldn't, I, I could say that for every single question that I'm going to ask when I look at paper because these are from uh, the audience. But in short, I'm going to just abbreviate a little bit. Uh, what often sets someone down a path of self discovery is trauma. So, as a mother, how do you work to nurture a sense of security for your children while also encouraging them to go on their own quests of self discovery?
1: Yeah, that's really tricky because my kids are like, they have the, the opposite. Life than I had as a child. My kids are just basically little cupcakes, you know, and nothing, you know, my, my son a couple of years ago, my kids go to public school, but a couple of years ago, we were thinking of applying. We, we applied to this um, private school, and my son had to fill out the application. And um, even though he was like 10, they were like, you know, describe, you know, a challenge that you've overcome. And my son was like, I don't have any, I haven't had to overcome anything, mom. You know, and he was like so upset that nothing bad had happened to him. <laughs> and I was like, my God, what an uninteresting life you have, you know. Um, so, <laughs> so um, it, it is kind of funny because like I, you're right, I protect my kids. I want my kids to have, um, to not be witness to, you know, I, I had a lot of uh, traumatic things actually happen to me at a young age and um and one of the great profound joys of my life is that, that my kids do not have that experience. Um, I remember a few years ago, uh, I told my kids about my father um, being abusive to me. I mean, it was more than a few years ago. My kids were maybe five or six when I first told them that my father had you know, battered my mother and had been physically abusive to me. And my kids actually thought that I was joking um, because they, they didn't understand that adults can behave that way. They didn't really actually understand um, that that could be true because all of their encounters with adults had been you know people behaving like you should behave. And so you know I love that we're not replicating that. Um, and I think that, that of course, like any humans, my kids will have their own challenges um, and maybe one of them is just going to be like having the, the perfect childhood that I gave them being the perfect mother. <laughs>
0: Overcoming the lack overcoming, of obstacles. Mom, what am I going to put on this application?
1: I made their life too easy. No, I'm kidding about that because, of yeah. course, I'm the most imperfect mother. But what I mean is I think that no matter what your circumstances are, you always have challenges, right? I mean, this is always... I mean, the, this, the human struggle is true, whether you're living you know, in difficult circumstances or, or a life of luxury, and we all know that.
0: We were talking backstage a bit about quotes that have resonated with people yeah. and I'd love to know whether in brave enough or elsewhere what are some of the quotes that have most resonated with your readers and fans
1: oh some of the quotes that are brave. that's
0: right you know whether they're in the book or elsewhere is it what has really right. struck a chord
1: well you know what's interesting to me and, and I say this in the introduction to brave enough um, th- that it's I really believe that, of course, you know, the writer creates these words and they're his or her, you know, sentences on that page. But the minute we release them into the world, they really belong to the readers. And so, I didn't know uh, when I was writing my books, I didn't know what quotes would be would resonate with with readers, right? And I loved that in Brave Enough, it was essentially a crowdsourced book um, that I looked to the internet and said, well, what are people, um, you know. Tattoo, you know, they tattoo things on their bodies. And one of the, the big surprises for me, there's lots of people who have a tattoo of the last line of wild, how wild it was to let it be. And I know, um, I know what that line means to me, and I know what that line means in the context of the book. But what's beautiful about every one of those, those wild tattoos from that last line, is that whatever it means to, to the, those, that individual who had that tattooed on the, their arm or whatever, it, it, it's, it's not mine. It's not my story, you know? Nobody's going to, to get that written on their body because it has something to do with me. It has something to do with them. And I love that way that we can own beauty that other people have made because it lives within, within us then. You know, those quotes that mean something to me that other writers have written. Um, it's not so much about their intention. It's about the meaning I took from it. Mm-hmm.
0: Are there any other quotes that come to mind that have been particularly well-tattooed or turned into T-shirts or otherwise?
1: Well, there's a lot of, you know, there's how wild it was to let it be, um, be a warrior for love, write like a motherfucker. <laughs> I mean... Um, <laughs>
0: You Very know, important. That write like write. a mother.
1: You know, they, they actually, write like a motherfucker is such a, has become such a thing that I didn't even. It's not even in brave enough. Like it's not one of the quotes in brave enough. I write about it in the introduction, um, but but my favorite thing is that my book signings, um, people will come up to me and say, you know, will you please write. Um, Engineer like a motherfucker, (laughs)
0: or um, you know, mother like a motherfucker.
1: Be a mother. Mother like a motherfucker is another common one, and um, and and I love that because that's what write like a motherfucker means. Like that's what that column. I don't know if any of you have read that column, but but that's what I'm drive was driving at when I was writing about. You know, writing this letter to this writer who's saying, I'm a writer, but I can't write, and I want to be David Foster Wallace, but I'm not David Foster Wallace, and I'm 26, and why aren't I famous yet? I was saying, shut up and write like a motherfucker. And you know, I think that that applies to almost any kind of work we do.
0: So what, can you elaborate on that? Because I'd, I'd love to hear, for those people who haven't read, like, what, does, what does write like a motherfucker mean to you when you are writing?
1: OK, it's, it's about having motherfuckitude. <laughs> Which which is which is a combination of two seemingly opposing um, ideas, and that is humility. Okay, which I think sometimes gets misinterpreted as weakness, Mm. as being subservient. And and there's a reason we think that, right? To be humble, we we say people when somebody came of humble means, we mean they came from nothing. Um, The word. Humble actually comes from the Latin humus, which means the, the ground, to be down low, to be of the earth. And what I found in my journey as a writer um, is that you know, even though I aspired to greatness, even though I wanted to make beauty and truth and all those big highfalutin things, the only way that I could do it um, was to be humble and to say, I'm going to really try and I might fail. And I'm not going to feel sorry for myself I'm going to be strong, you know, in the midst of my humility. My humility is about um, really forgetting about all of those glorious things that, that one gets when one has what we call success. Um, attention, fame, money, whatever, achievement. But just put my faith in the work and um, be really, you know, be really fierce when it comes and very exacting and demand a lot of myself when it comes to actually doing the work. And so that combination of that kind of you know real strength that you have to have to do something that's hard, uh, writing a book is hard, writing an essay is hard, writing a poem is hard, um, with that kind of sense of surrender, that sense of kind of like here I am, I'm going to do this work and I don't know where it will lead, and acceptance. You know I think that those I, I think of humility, acceptance, and surrender as all these really um, you know words that are connected to each other in meaning. Um, and we think of them all in these kind of... We, we disassociate them from things like strength and power. Mm-hmm. But I really think that the only way to get to those places is through those things. Definitely. Yeah.
0: Just the adaptability that comes with being able to surrender, even if it's just surrendering to uncertainty.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So if you look at, then, if we take those <laughs> principles, and this, this segues nicely to Jody Valley-Smith, I think it is, from Facebook... Does she show up every day for two hours no matter what it takes? A few days or a few days at a time away from home? In other words, what is your writing process? Finding space to write with mom things to do is hard. Uh, and of course, morning routine. So I think that uh Jody would just like to hear about what your writing routine looks like. And yeah. maybe to make it specific, if you were let's say on a book deadline
1: uh-huh.
0: or on any kind of deadline. Yeah. What does your process look look like? What time of day? Any rituals?
1: Yeah. So, I, for a long time, I denied uh, the fact that I was a binge writer, and I'm here to tell you what, my name is Cheryl Strait, and I'm a binge writer. Um, you know, for, when I, I remember being like in my 20s, and I would go to like you know uh, see writers give lectures and readings and so forth, and um, it would always be some like you know old guy who was like, "Of course I write every day. If you don't write every day, you are not a writer." And then you would look deeper, and you know this man would be like. In his office, and then his wife would like bring him lunch, and then he would have lunch, and then he would write a little and I was like, that's just not my life. nobody's like catering my life. you know <laughs> I had to you know have a I, I was bringing lunch to other people. I was a waitress i was so what I found is that i creatively um, and this was true before I had kids it's true after um as well for different reasons, is that I do best when I can say this is the block of time that I'm not going to be able to write. And sometimes that's like a couple days. Sometimes that's a couple months. And, you know, therefore I release myself from any kind of guilt or shame or I should be writing when I'm not writing. Um, and and the, the counterpoint to that is to say, now I am going to write on these days or during these months. And I try to arrange my life so that that happens. And so, you know, what that looks like for me is not so much a daily practice, As it is, uh, looking, you know, looking at the month and saying, when can I write and when I'm, when am I not going to write? And so, you know, for me, um, especially since I had kids, you know, when, when, when the children came, my kids are 11 and 12. When, when I, when I had kids, suddenly my whole life had to be redefined, obviously, but especially that work life, because writing is all about concentration, solitude, and silence. And those are the three things that children are most not about, you know? <laughs> and um, I had to find you know, a place to to do that. And so once my kids were a little bit older, um, I had them 18 months apart. It was like a whip, rip the Band-Aid off fast approach to childbearing. And um, they, once they were like two, I said to my husband, I'm going to go check into a hotel like down the street for two nights. I'm going to be gone for 48 hours. Don't call me unless somebody stops breathing. Um, and I'm going to work, and I would get more work done in those 48 hours than I got done for weeks at home. And this isn't to say I didn't, you know, write around the edges of things at home. But I find that I can, do, when I do that immersion, it's incredibly fruitful for me. And you know, like I said, that was true even before kids. Like, you know, I, I never thought of it until I had kids and actually had to get away to a hotel or whatever. But um, before that, I would go to writers' residencies, or I would just go rent a cabin somewhere, and um, there's something about that sort of uninterrupted time to make something happen that works far better um, for me than, you know, that every day, like you have to write two or three hours every day. Um, And that's just how it is. That, you know, that's just my process.
0: I had the same experience because I remember very early on (laughs) this writing teacher I really, really respected, said, no matter what, from 8 a.m. to 6, yeah. every day, I sit in front of a blank piece of paper. <laughs> and I tried that, within 48 hours, just wanted to throw myself face-first through Yeah, Couldn't do it. And uh, I wanted to ask you about the hotel. So yeah. I've heard, after hearing a number of writers, about a number of writers doing this, I remember I hit a really tough spot with The 4-Hour Chef, and I checked into a hotel in the town where I live, and also got a tremendous amount done what what did those days look like for you so you have a few days blocked out what do the days look like
1: like like if if somebody had a video camera and like recorded me during those times it would look like sheer madness because i hardly sleep i hardly eat all i do is go on walks and write and go on walks and write and go on walks and write um it, it there is this um I think it's there's something about it too that it's when you have like forty eight hours or whatever number like I knew that time my time was limited and therefore it was really valuable mm-hmm. and I um, got into the flow you know I think it's I mean there are different terms for this, the immersive flow, that kind of thing that happens, and you know I think that you need to have that thing happen for for any kind of real work, but especially creative work um, you know when you're writing, what you're trying to create um, on the page is that John Gardner describes it as this vivid and continuous dream. You actually are trying to create an alternate reality for somebody else. You have to tell them, you know, what that person looks like, what that person feels like, what that person is thinking, what's in the room, what does it smell like. All of those things have to come alive. And that can't come alive on the page if you aren't inhabiting that. And it's really hard to dip into that for 15 minutes at a time. And so I just knew that I had to, um, just go all the way there during those hotel stays. You know, and what what about you? I mean, is that your experience? Is it kind of like you're a madman?
0: I I am, and I've always... I mean, we know you are, but... I'm madman, just base level, number one lunacy, and then absolutely a binge writer. And I've always had some degree of shame or insecurity about it, because I hear about these... every day, And I have friends who are, say, journalists, who say, ah, writer's block doesn't exist, I'm like... Really? Like, am I the only one who believes in Santa Claus here? Or yeah. <laughs> what's happening? And I need those uninter- uninterrupted blocks of time, yeah. where it's m- very likely that the majority of the day, it may look like I'm just staring off into space. But if I don't have that space, I'm not going to get to the writing.
1: Well, that's right. Part of the writing is just wandering the room yeah. and yeah, that sort of thing. You know, I, I do think that um, the reason that this is important, I think, to say and talk about Is for some reason like shame and guilt is a really big thing for a lot of writers. Mm -hmm. You know this thing that we should be doing, and I can't tell you how many times I've told the story of being a binge writer, and somebody comes up to me afterwards and says, "Thank you, thank you. I, you know, you gave me permission to call myself a writer." And my most the most moving experience I had in that regard was I was giving a talk in Ohio a few years ago, and um, afterwards this woman. Came up to me and she, has, she was a single mother with four kids and had been you know, slowly writing her novel over many years. And she worked at like a 7 Eleven or some job like that. And um, she was crying about this thing I had said about binge writing. And she said, I, you know, because one thing I said is like, it, it doesn't matter what you should do, just make, it, make an intention and follow through with it. And so if, that, if all you can do is say, I'm going to write one day a month. I'm going to take one day a month. That, that's all I'm do, doing is writing. That's 12 good days a year. That's a lot of writing you can get done. And she said to me, that's, that's what I do. I write once a month. My mom takes my kids. And she had never allowed herself to think of herself as a writer. Because she'd been doing it wrong, she hadn't been doing what that old guy who gets his lunch brought to him by his wife that had said you had to do. Yeah, and and you know I think it's really liberating to say you have to do like with anything, writing with life, you have to do it in a way that works for
0: you. And to that point, I remember one of the best pieces of advice that I got when I was completely paralyzed for a period of of months with uh, just fear of writing in this particular project I was working on, and the advice was two crappy pages a day. Yeah. you're on deadline, but it's not going to be Tolstoy. Relax. Two crappy pages a day. You might not use any of what you write for a week or two, but just put down two crappy pages per day. And, and what happened? What happened is some days it is two crappy pages, and it's terrible, and you don't use it. But other days, you end up writing 20 pages, and then there's five good pages. And it's Tolstoy,
1: <laughs> which you transcribe from I'm his I'm working.
0: Right. I'm working. It's a work in progress. Uh, Question that I've actually wanted to ask you in some form for a long time. This is from I think it's Finja F I N J A from Twitter. How do you get through wild or destructive emotions without destroying anyone or anything?
1: Oh, you mean like how do you write a memoir without hurting somebody's feelings? Is that what you saying? I don't
0: know. I, I think this is broad enough. That how do you, you get, you get can wild. interpret it however however you might. I mean, but how do you work through potentially wild or destructive emotions? Uh, and I mean, very closely related to this is another question which is related to pouring out your heart on paper. I see. And whether that is cathartic, whether it reinforces maybe the pain that you're Mm -hmm. feeling, but how do you sort through uh, difficult emotions yourself?
1: Right, yeah. No, that's a question that comes up a lot, and I think that there are basically two kinds of people. Those who think talking about, thinking about um, difficult experiences or painful memories or painful emotions is um, a bad thing because it brings up those feelings again. You know, why would you want to dwell on something that makes you cry or makes you remember that sorrow? Um, There's that camp. And then there's the camp um, that is like, let's dig it all up because the only way um, ever to understand what happened or make some meaning um, of that suffering is, is to examine it and to look at it and to tell stories about it. And I'm definitely in that latter camp. You know, I think that I think that um, did I sometimes cry writing wild? Yeah, I would say probably every day. You know, probably every day. And was that good for me or bad for me? It was really good for me. For when I when I first um, my first book Torch, is fiction, but there are autobiographical elements to it. It's a story about a woman who dies young of cancer, like my mom did, and it's kind of you know a first novel um, in that way that a lot of first novels are you know both fiction and and autobiographical. And I remember um, when that book first came out, and I was always you know talking about the real life experiences that were connected to that book. Um, people would say, "Was it cathartic for you to write it?" And I and I was um, I would always say no, you know, because I was, in some ways, defensive about that. Um, Maybe specifically as a woman writer, because I think whenever women, in particular, write about um, emotional things, it's it's put in this kind of like, oh, that's your nice little journal, you're processing your emotions, versus um, it being allowed to be in like the sort of high art camp of great American literature. And so I would say, absolutely not. It is not cathartic. I I made, this is literature. And by the time I published Wild, I felt confident enough in my work and also evolved enough in my own life that I could say, you know, both things are true. That there, there is no question that, that you know, the, the most cathartic, I would say the most cathartic thing in my life, right alongside motherhood for me, has been writing. It is through writing that I have come to understand um, who I am and what i've been through and therefore who we all are and there's there's that's really been an emotional journey and one that i'm better for having taken and so and yet that can also be by way of creating literature creating art mm-hmm. and so you know i i think it's good that i had to understand more deeply what happened to me i mean one of the things once you start to tell a story about your suffering is you have to think about the people or person who made you suffer. And you start to have to empathize with them. You have to start to ask, like, well, why did this person do this to me, or what did it mean when that happened? And you know, I, I think that it really um, it, it is, you know, this, this word healing is kind of overused, and yet it's exactly what that is. I think this is why therapists are always, you know, they don't put you in the chair and say, let's not talk about anything bad that happened to you in your childhood. They say, what happened? You know, where are your wounds? And writing is all about that. Writing is all about where are your wounds? And you see this, I see this over and over again in teaching. You know, this is what people, these are the stories that people want to tell. There's. I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard um, that the the oldest continuously used sentence in the English language is woe is me. (laughs) And one of my favorite writing prompts is, I ask my students, write a woe is me narrative. And everyone can do it instantly because everyone feels sorry for themselves. Everyone has a complaint, whether it be large or small. Um, and we have lots of stories to tell about ourselves, the, way, the ways that we've been wronged by the driver in the next lane or the, the mother you know, who didn't do this or that. You know? And I think that, um, that, that's, you know, that kind of, there's something good about our stories rising from those, those wounded moments.
0: You have some fantastic writing prompts. And, uh, and there's so many of them that have made me go, ooh, ooh, that could really produce something interesting, such as, I think I'm probably paraphrasing here, but uh, who has been your darkest teacher? Yeah. Which could be interpreted many different ways. Mm-hmm. What are some of the prompts that have produced the most, for you, interesting writing in your students?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, the talisman one. When I, when I ask people to, um... To write about an object, so a talisman is simply an object that has accumulated meaning for you or your character, right? And so this could be—I mean, it, it could be anything. It could be um, like a—you know—a cultural talisman is like my wedding ring. We all know what this means, right? Um, and then there are other things like you don't know the meaning of this ring, okay? That's a personal talisman, and all, and all of those things have a story attached to them. And I find too that when people write about um, themselves via a physical object. It's 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 incredibly expansive. People are willing to um, say more about themselves often when when the story is is about something other than them.
0: Right. It's inter- more indirect.
1: Exactly. So that's a good one. The woe is me one never fails because, like I said, you know we can all um, complain, and sometimes those compl- that complaint is serious and deep and valid, and sometimes it's just like these little dumb things that we're pissed off about, um, and. You know, the the rants rants and raves, we're we're all really good at that kind of passion. Um, I think something like Your Darkest Teacher, that one, is a really important one to me because part of my, um, I would say one of the most significant stops along the way for me as a writer was feeling grateful for the people who taught me things that were difficult or painful or ugly things that I didn't want to know, and, and actually getting to a place with them that I did feel grateful for what they had given me.
0: So you mentioned the ranting. I want to come back to those days in the hotel because I'm so interested in process, as okay. are a lot of people in the audience who sent questions. I remember once, this is before I wrote my first book, when I was toying around with the idea of writing and I was in an audience where Poe Bronson was being interviewed, writer. And I raised my hand and I asked him what he did when he had any type of block. And he said, I asked myself, what makes me angry? And he used that as a way to jumpstart his writing. When you hit a place, let's just say, in the 48 hours that you have to write, and maybe this doesn't happen, which is a valid answer too, where you're not sure how to piece something together or it's just not flowing, what are some of the mechanisms or tricks or habits that you use to help in a situation like that?
1: Well, you know, one of the things, I'm 48 now. I've been a serious writer since I was like 19. And I really have learned how to... Remember the lessons I've learned along the way, and one of the lessons I learned is it's always hard for me to begin, and and not just I don't mean just like what the first line is of any given chapter or piece, which is always hard, but even like when you've been in that flow and then you take that break, you finish that section, and then you have to begin the next, and I think that I get it's it's almost a like this almost like performance anxiety, like I'm always like you know what's the first thing I'm going to say when I step into the room. once, you, right? Like that's difficult for many of us, right? It's like that beginning. You know, you know what you have to say, but how do you get to the part where you get to just say what you have to say? And so, in writing, what I do is I take a shortcut around it. And when I'm when I'm feeling stuck, you know, if I don't have that first line or that first paragraph, I just say write the part that you know. Okay, so like th- that might mean it's kind of sloppy. Like that, I have to start writing something that's like you know. A third of the way into the piece. Like, it's a scene that I've already imagined that's going to be in there, or um, a paragraph of just a, a description of something. And what I find is once I start writing, I relax. And then, of course, you can go back and right. make that beginning. You know, so just begin um, in, a, in a nonlinear like, trust that you don't have to, to write something in a linear fashion. And sometimes that also reveals to you like, a better way that the story can be told. Because sure. you know chronology is always like a question in any piece you write. Do you begin here or do you begin there? And, and sometimes the writing process actually can teach you the answer to that question.
0: This is a question from Fallon Goodman, Facebook. She mentioned in a Facebook post once that she thinks about mortality daily. So again, this may or not may not be accurate. But, but once... I do,
1: yes. OK, no. great.
0: I'd love to hear. Uh, her explain, what triggers them? Uh, What do these thoughts motivate her to do? What do they prevent her from doing? So could you elaborate?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. People. uh, Yeah, I did make a Facebook post one time that said that. Uh, I don't remember what compelled that post, um, but I know what compelled it in my life. So when I was uh, 22, my mom died uh, very suddenly of cancer at the age of 45. She uh, knew that she had cancer for seven weeks. Um, She was like this healthy person, and then she got what she thought was a bad cold, and one thing led to another, and she was told that she had advanced stage lung cancer. She hadn't been a smoker, um, and she just died. I mean, she just died seven weeks later. And um, I was a senior in college. My mom was a senior in college, too. And what happened to me um, really from that moment on is I was like, I was like not only devastated that I'd lost my mom, but I was shocked. Um, I was young enough that I like it never occurred to me like really mortality. I'd never had to confront it. It had never occurred to me that my mom would die, um, you know, at a time when I used to think that she that she wasn't meant to die that young. You know, like I still had this kind of youthful idea that like people live to be old, and of course that's what happened. And so when my mom died, I suddenly was just acutely aware that any of us could die at any moment. And I know that it sounds strange to be 22. And like, rationally, I knew that we could all die. But I didn't know it in my bones. You know? I didn't know it in my body. And my mom dying gave that to me. And so it's true. I think what I said in that post is that every day since my mom died, there hasn't been a day that I haven't thought about my own death. That's true. And I don't think about it in a morbid way, but I think of it in a way that I'm um, I'm aware that that of I'm, I'm not taking my life for granted and not taking your life for granted or any of our lives for granted. It's 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 not. Um, I think we, we have this really a problem with death in this culture. You know, we we, we put it we keep it at a distance. And I think even at the expense of our imagining our own mortality, like we think of this as sort of a grim thing to think about. And I actually just think it's a very realistic way to, to carry out throughout your day, to think, you know, okay, here I am, and I'm lucky to be here, and let's just hope this goes till tomorrow, you know. And I, I think that um, it has given me, I don't know what the word would be, a, a more realistic sense of who we are and what we're doing here, mm-hmm. you know. And a greater sense of, um, I want to use the word consequence. You know, when I say bye to people, I think, you know, I try to make that connection. Mm Do you think that's crazy?
0: I don't think it's crazy. I mean, goodbye is God be with you, right? So it's it's intended to be a, I may not see you again. Uh, It's not crazy to me at all. And I had a very close friend die uh, of... Cancer, I didn't know about. Certainly not, remotely as difficult as what you went through. But nonetheless, found out late stage on a ski trip that he was going to die a few months later because he had metastasized liver cancer.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Seeming was a former super athlete. Yeah. No outward signs whatsoever, and had a few incidents. And shortly thereafter, a friend, a close friend of mine from college, killed himself. Also completely out of left field. So. He, for myself, began A, revisiting Stoic philosophy. And I mean, they are somewhat (laughs) obsessed with death in every form, but also planting these memento mori around my house so that I would think about mortality more often. Is there a particular way that you prompt thinking about your own mortality, or do you have any rituals? Uh, For instance, one thing that I do every time uh, I'm in a plane, and it's about to take off. I ask myself, would I be would I be okay with dying right now?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: As a way to evaluate what I'm focusing on, uh, and that's just a very simple way because I travel so much to revisit the mortality.
1: Right. What do you? What's your answer? Almost always yes, mm-hmm.
0: and if if it's not, that's the catalyst for making some changes. Mm-hmm. Usually, saying no to more things. <laughs>
1: Right. Yeah, me too. That yeah. Same but I'm not okay with dying, just for the record. Yeah, we'll um,
0: <laughs> no, I should clarify, being okay with dying, any crazy stalkers in the audience, means not that I, I want, want to time. die. <laughs> try to kill me, I will throat punch you. But that it's, it's a way of gauging how true I am being to the things I claim are important to me.
1: Yeah. No, I get that. Yeah, to me, it's, not, it's more organic. Like it really is just an awareness because I, I, it sounds I want to return to this thing I said where it never, it had never occurred to me that my mom would die. And of course, I'm being hyperbolic. It had occurred to me, um, but I, it occurred to me in that same way, like that most of us go along in our lives feeling rather complacent, right? That like, you know, it could happen, but it probably won't. So let's like, let's just push that really far. And so at this moment, you know, when my mom died, I was, like I said, a senior in college. I was also in this moment of, of, my life and all of our lives when we're in our early 20s where you're, you're trying to figure out, like, who you are, you know, coming into your manhood or your womanhood. And that's, that's you know, what was happening to me. And, you know, it took me... Um, one of the most fascinating processes I ever went through was, was actually letting go of my mother. And, you know, my, even, like, I would dream... You know, I had, like, months of just dreams about um, accepting my mother's death. And the, the dream that I had over and over, which I know it's the boringest thing in the whole world to have somebody tell you their dream, but I'll just keep it quick, is that I would have to murder my mother over and over. I had to kill her, had to beat her to death, had to bury her alive, had to run her over with a truck, had to do terrible things to my mother. And it was just like because I couldn't believe she was dead. And I think that, that um, what I've come to know through my work is that you know, I've talked to so many people who have experienced deep grief, and they also went through that. And you know, it's it's something that, for whatever reason, we don't really um, know how to talk about it in a public way, or to to sort of bring into the fold of like what it means to what, what what human experience is. And so, it's to me, my awareness of immortality is 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 um it's just more that it's something that I that I notice in a way that I didn't notice it before. Um, instead of choosing that sense of complacency. Like, well, that won't happen to us. It's living in that place where you say, yes, it will. Every single one of us, right here in this room, every single one of us, we're going to have that shared experience of dying.
0: There's a really fascinating experiment that was done. I want to say it was NPR, but uh, there were these dinners hosted around the country called Death Over Dinner. And there were discussions about death. Because, like you said, it's it's a subject that I think is underexplored and under-discussed. And Mm -hmm. then people are caught very much unprepared for the emotional hardship and everything that goes with mortality. This is a question from Jessica Larson from Facebook. Were there ever dear sugar questions that she felt unequipped to answer, and in general, did she have a particular process for answering the questions?
1: Yeah, you know, many times. Um, so I used to write a, a column, the dear sugar column, but now I have this podcast, and you know, there are definitely questions that are like, wow. I don't know um, what to say. You know, I don't know what to tell you to do. But, and, and you know, one of the things I've always positioned myself as when it comes to giving advice is sugar is it's not really, um, I'm not trying to tell people what to do. I'm trying to help them ask deeper questions. I'm trying to help them help illuminate maybe. Sometimes people think that their question is this, but it's really that. And I think of myself as somebody um, who's trying to, to illuminate a conflict or a struggle by way of giving advice. Um, and there are some times where it's just impossible. I would say you know, the, the few times, um, both in the column and then now on the radio show, that I've received a, a question from a woman who is pregnant, and um, doesn't know what to do. Like have an abortion, have the baby, and then give it up for adoption or keep the baby. this, this I'm thinking of one woman right now wrote to me with that scenario. And you know, what I, I, I broke my own rule in this in this one question is I responded to her personally. Usually, I only respond on the show or in the column and I emailed her personally because I felt like she was in a really desperate situation and needed help but I also wrote to her to say like I could not possibly be the person nobody would be the person who could tell you what to do because there are some decisions that have such high stakes and such personal consequence that only you can say so those are really hard ones when it's when it's a you know those are that's a very black and white decision right whatever that person decides that's that's you know really a, a big deal um usually the kinds of questions we get.
0: Not to to interrupt, but I will. How do you help someone in, say, an email that you send to her to process that? How do I help? Help her to process it, like like you mentioned, because I think you're very good at it. And you say, you, of course, mentioned the email, I can't make this decision for you but is is there more to the email?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it was like one of the longest email, emails I've ever written. So, what? um what I did is I walked her through my thinking about the the consequences of each decision. Um, and you know, I, I said, you know, these are the things, this is, this is what, you know, I, I did with her the way I would do it in the column, which is like, okay, so, you know, what are, why are the reasons that you would do this or that or the other thing? And, I, you know, we, I laid all the, all the scenarios out. And I think that that's, in my own life, um, always what I do when I'm having a hard time. And I, I talk about this a lot on the show. It's like I'm a super big fan of list making. I'm like the list queen and every problem I've ever had has been solved by a list. Um, it, you you write down like all the reasons for this and all the reasons for the other thing, and then all the you know, and it's like yeah, and there's sublists, and you know, you could color code them, you could get highlighters, and um, the answer is there. Okay,
0: we have to <laughs> do a deep dive on the list.
1: I know you're going to make me talk about the.
0: I would, okay, I would love any example. Okay. Of yours. Okay. And how you, what was the challenge, or problem, or question, and what did the lists look like?
1: Well, you know, I mean, it's so hard to pick one because there are so many times. Okay, oh, this was a big one. Um, well, speaking of kids, so I have two kids. Um, when I, so when I was um, almost 40, uh, I thought that I was maybe pregnant, Again. And it, it wasn't planned, but it was kind of like, well, maybe we should have a third kid, you know? And so my husband and I were like agonizing. We're like, well, what do, what do we do if, you know, like we, this is a kid is a big deal. Do we want a third kid? And so um, I made a list and, and it was like everything, I, all the reasons I didn't want to, all the fears. And the, what I mean that there are sublists is like, well, why are you afraid of this thing? Like sometimes the thing that you're afraid of that's like on the no side of the list. Can actually be solved by another list because you can because you can solve that problem. You Meaning know? that
0: you would say, "Why am I afraid of?" X? Why am I afraid and once of Once you this? make that list, you realize that it's not scary.
1: Exactly. Or you can say, "Okay, well, this can be addressed." You know, like, um, you, "Oh, I don't ever have time to write." Well, we could do this or that. You know, it, it allows you to sort of see instead of just feel. What your challenges are. There's something about having it in front of you that, in, in some ways, um, it, it pins it in place rather than allowing it to float around in your head and be this like big terrible monster thing. Nebulous. Yeah. And oh. then the reasons to do it and the reasons not to do it. You know. And those are those are like really, um, I think, they allow you to kind of see. It's, it's it's literally like a map on the wall of your life. You know, what you want, what you fear, what you desire. <laughs> Um, and, and I think that those things, that we make them very explicit rather than just imagined, um, a, a list does that.
0: So I, I do something very similar, actually. Yeah. When I'm afraid of something, I'll ask. It's effectively the worst case list. <laughs> so yeah. What are the worst things that could happen if I did X, yeah. which I kind of want to do, but I've been putting off, and then how can I mitigate the risk of all of these horrible things from happening one at a time? Yeah. What could I do to get back to where I am now? Yeah, it usually ends up diffusing in some way. A lot of the things that I expect are going to be these insurmountable problems, which are in fact just nebulous and need to be very much so. And
1: often, you know, sometimes too, you know, like there could be. I did. We did end up not having a third child. I wasn't pregnant, you know, and we decided not to. But what was really striking to me about that list, and the reason I brought it up, is that there was only one thing on the list of reasons we should have a third child. And there were like 300 things on the other list. But the one thing on the list to do it was more important than any of those other 300 things.
0: You know, Is that a visceral, is that a instinctive perception? Or is there some way, is that just a feeling that you have in terms of the importance of that one versus the 300?
1: No, the importance of that one is that you know having like my my husband and I made this list together it was like having our kids is the best thing we've ever done bar nothing mm-hmm. you know so it was just like a very clear th- truth um that was standing at counterpoint um to these like you know we don't have much time as it is and you know we won't be able to sleep for another 2 years and you know all all of that stuff you know and so you know obviously um th- that i think that this is often true when i've had professional um I've been at sort of crossroads when different opportunities have come my way. You know, here are the reasons to do it, here are the reasons not to. It's not about the number of things on the list, it's about the weight of those things. And almost always, I think, the things that 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 mean and matter the most um, really come down to sort of one question. What do you really want to do? And this is something that I really believed to be true. And I, and I have the privilege of seeing letters from so many people who write to Dear Sugar and almost always in the letter of the person who's saying, I don't know what to do. And I have this problem and I don't know if I should break up with her, or if I don't know if I should do the, take this job or move to New York city or, you know, go to Paris, um, you know, whatever it is, the person who writes the letter almost always knows. And I think that one of the scariest things in our lives is actually doing what we know we want to do. Um most of us don't give ourselves permission to th- do that. Most of us take many years to um, to do that. You, you said earlier, um, one of the hardest things for you is to learn how to say no. Mm-hmm. still is. and that's me too. And that's about uh, giving ourselves permission to do what we want to do. and it's because we associate that, like even that phrase like i uh, when I say doing what you want to do. I'm sure some of you in the audience think, well, that's very selfish. That's a, we, as, we associate that with being selfish. And it's kind of like the way humility is strength, vulnerability is strength, those two seemingly opposing things sit opposite, you know, they sit opposite each other, they're also the same thing. I really think there's something about um, this, you know, that, that, that actually doing what you wanna do is, is the opposite of, of selfishness. Mm-hmm. It's actually a kind of um, generosity, because you're being honest, you're being, you know, um, you're saying this is what this is what I need and I won't expect you to do something you don't need to, you know? What, what have you learned about your journey to saying no?
0: I've come to a very similar conclusion. Now that doesn't mean it always translates to the action. Uh-huh. <laughs> Although more and more it does. What I've realized for myself is that, A, and what I've observed just in my female audience is that many mothers have also come to the same conclusion that if they don't, if they don't take care of themselves, they cannot most effectively take care of other people. Uh-huh. So I do not have kids, but I feel an obligation to act on behalf and do things on behalf of, say, my readership or my listeners. And there have been points in the past where I've made some, some very unwise sacrifices and compromises with health and otherwise, not to mention all the harebrained physical experiments that I've done. But putting those aside, I think just remembering that if you you don't protect the vessel, Mm -hmm. you're going to ultimately in some way hinder everything else that you want to do for others. Yeah. So that's part one. Part two is that I've realized for myself in the saying no thread that there, there are certain things that I can moderate well, and there are certain things where I'm very binary. And that if I say yes to one, I'm going to suddenly open the floodgates mm-hmm. and be more prone to saying yes to many, many things. Yeah. So that is why, for instance, I stopped across the board doing any startup investing. I was involved with technology for a long time, for about mm-hmm. a decade. And I realized that as soon as I let one in, I'm going to feel a compulsion to compare it to everything else that has come in. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at hundreds of emails. Yeah and that I don't do moderation well in that sphere. So it's either a yes to opening the floodgates or it's a no to everything. Right. And trying to be as honest with myself when I journal, say, to clarify my own thoughts or make lists. I also have a hypergraphic tendency to create lots of lists. To try to be as honest with myself and in longhand explore uh, what I am good at moderating and what I'm not good at moderating. Mm-hmm. And whenever possible, in the things where I'm not good at moderating, saying no to everything in that category, unless it is of primary importance with the answer to the, what do I really want? Yeah. Which I think is, this, for me at least, a surprisingly tricky question at times.
1: Right, and yeah, obviously, and we're, we're also, we're not talking about like, I want a hot fudge Sunday right now, so let us go get one. I mean, I'm not <laughs> talking about that. When I say to, to do, you know, that most of us take a long time to, to learn how to say what we want, I, I, I mean for those, those bigger things. Like, the, you know, for me, it's been very connected to um, what I give beyond, like, the books I write to, you know, how do I um, keep that, that line of communication open between the readers and the writer, and how do I also have my own private life, you know? For sure. And it's tricky.
0: It is tricky. For those people who are wondering, and uh, here in person, we are going to be doing a book signing at the book signing location after this session. Uh, So there's that, since it's related. But I would love to ask you who you, not who, but what type of people do you go to for advice? So you're very good at giving advice. When you need advice, what type, what are the characteristics of the people you go to, and how do you elicit advice? Mm
1: -hmm. You know, I think that um, maybe what helped me sort of have the audacity just to to even begin writing the sugar column. Because you know, of course, the first question I asked myself when I agreed to write the Dear Sugar column is, "Who the hell am I? You know, why do I? Why why would I think that I could give anyone advice?" And you know, what I realized right away is, like, first of all, I never, um, I, I never positioned myself as the authority on anything. And and the reason I could do that so comfortably is the. Much of the best advice I've received does not come from somebody who has like a credential to give advice, right? You know, I mean, obviously, I think that, that psychologists and therapists can give great advice and do, and they absolutely serve a function. I'm not questioning that at all. But I also think that most of us get a wisdom from a wide range of sources um, from the people we know and love, from strangers on the street, from therapists and counselors, from teachers, from books you know, from podcasts. And so, you know, I I turn in all of those directions. When I find that I'm stuck, um, for example, this question of no has been um, a big one for me over the last few years. I have asked Oprah how she says no.
0: (laughs) Good person (laughs) to have on your speed dial. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's true. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah. No, no, that's a great person to ask. <laughs> but I've
1: asked Oprah, who let me tell you has some really interesting <laughs> things to say about that, um, which I know is talking to all of you, right? Um, I've asked you know friends. I've asked people at parties who I met. You know, like we get on this subject of no. I think a lot of people struggle with this question. You know, they, we all have different relationships to you know what what kinds of things are being asked. But every, but almost everyone has something to tell you to tell you about it. Um, and, you know, I think that, that to me, that's always too. When I'm giving advice, I always feel like I'm just one voice. And I encourage people, don't just listen to me. I'm going to offer you what I can offer you. And then somebody else, it's not about being right or wrong. It's about illumination. It's about getting you as the person who's seeking advice to ask deeper questions, to bring into consciousness, maybe, a little piece of this that you didn't see before you talked to me. And I love that. I love that about both advice giving and advice taking.
0: It's also, I mean, the approach that a lot of uh, successful crisis hotline operators use, that in the sense that they're not trying to give a solution to a problem, they're trying to defuse acute reactionary uh, impulses and help people to illuminate yeah. what it is they're feeling and thinking.
1: Well, you know, I think, too, that I would say that the maybe the most important kind of thing that people take from my advice is just that sense that they're not alone, they're okay. Even when you just, when you said earlier um, that saying no is hard for you, like, I, I just, if there were, like, little nodes attached to my brain, you know, that some little pleasure center would have been, you know, bumped up then because because it's like, OK, oh, yeah, so you seem like this together person who's successful in making it happen. And you clearly know how to say no. And then when you say, I don't know how to say no either. It's a struggle for me. Um, it's not advice that you've given me, but it's a sense of consolation. It's a sense of being part of a struggle. And I think that that's also what we seek when we seek advice. Definitely. Nobody can tell us you know, to end our marriages or do this or that or the other thing, right? But we can say, you're not alone. And I, too, have had that struggle.
0: So you mentioned marriage. I'd love to ask you a question that was uh, both a lot of men and women wanted to ask in some form or another, which is, why did you stray?
1: Why did I stray?
0: Mm-hmm. Because this is something that people have either experienced on one side or another or uh, have as a, a fear or a thought or a desire. It's, it's a very, it, this is not a new
1: Right. Phenomenon is it? Why did I start? I straight in a number of ways. But yeah, I think with that. So, uh, you know, bec- because I was young. So for those of you who don't know what this question means, um, I was, as I wrote about in Wild, I was married young and um, I just, my mom died and I just couldn't stay in the box, in the box of the, the, that, my, that my marriage was in and that my life was in. Um, so many of the the... So much a part of, a part of my growing up, I think, especially in my twenties, growing, doing that real adult growing up was about, um, testing the fire and, and, and seeing what it felt like to do something that I wasn't allowed to do. Um, and maybe that was that thing that I wasn't allowed to do was what I wanted to do and seeing what it felt like to do that. And, you know, it was really, um, painful and interesting and necessary. So that's why I strayed. And, you know, it led me, and, and, and of course, like almost always when we, when we um, make mistakes that harm ourselves, it almost always leads us to, if we, if we listen to that lesson, I mean, in some ways that was a dark teacher, right? It led me to this, this place that I could then, um, you know, make other choices, l- walk in a direction that was going to be um, not, not about increasing my suffering, but rather lessening it. <sighs> mm-hmm.
0: So this is a uh, question from Max Alpert. If she knew that there were people listening who are currently hiking in the Pacific Crest Trail, like me, <laughs> is there anything she would say to them?
1: Oh, I wish I were with you. <laughs> That's what I would say. You know, one thing that every, I've talked to so many people who have hiked some long distance trail or gone on a, even you know just a, a few weeks backpacking trip. It's always like the best thing any of us have ever done. And I don't understand why, because it's also really technically quite miserable. I mean, you have to like poop in a, a hole that you dug yourself with a stick. Yeah. And um, you have to like, sleep on the ground, and it's cold, and it's hot, and it's all of these things, and you have blisters. But it really, there's something about um, that kind of uh, doing something hard making yourself suffer in a physical way that feels um, like the opposite of suffering, incredibly restorative. So I, I have such nostalgia for my time on the Pacific Crest Trail.
0: Any piece of advice that you would give people on the trail for maybe, i just making this up, but a third of the way through, who knows, a week, week through and they just are thinking of packing it in? Well,
1: you know, it's always it's not just long distance hiking, but certainly long distance hiking. But I think any kind of journey, any kind of trip you're going to take um, to remember that it's not that it's that that usually it's it's not going to be fun all the time. And sometimes it's not going to be fun a lot of the time. Almost always when we're about to, to go on a trip or a journey, we imagine, like what we're imagining are those like sort of postcard scenes that we think we've gone to you know, Bucharest for or to the PCT for or whatever. And, and then you get there and it's like, you know, it's not like that. Um, but what I always say is it's, it's, I, I'm a real believer in retrospective fun. And that is, um, the, the, the fun that you have remembering the, like, shitty thing that happened, you know? <laughs> and, you know, this is really, like, when you, if I asked, if you and I, you know, if I asked you to tell me about some, of your travel experiences. I guarantee you, the things that you remember the most acutely are that, like, the time you almost died in Guatemala because you had such terrible diarrhea for a week, or the, you know, our, like, the diarrhea stories. They're our best travel stories, you know? <laughs> and, um, like, everyone America's remembers. America's best
0: diarrhea essays.
1: Everyone remembers, right? Every You remember that horrible. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, my husband um, is a documentary filmmaker, and he was making a, a documentary in Cambodia. And he ate something, and he went to bed. And he was so sick that he literally shot the bed. Like, he woke up. <laughs> and my kids, that's their favorite travel story. They're like, tell us again, Dad, about when you pooped in the bed. And, um, and it's like, and this is really true. And same with the Pacific Crest Trail. Um, you know, what did I write about? The, the funny thing about when I was writing Wild, I have my journals. And I was reading my journal, like, you know, what was I writing about on the PCT um, as part of the research for my book. And, you know, like, literally half the pages are me um, complaining about how much my feet hurt, you know? And it's because that's, you remember your suffering, and it becomes pleasure afterwards. <laughs> do, you, do you, is oh, that true? I
0: absolutely have it. So I think of the, the retrospective enjoyment, and I also think a lot in my own life and for my my family, meaning my parents and uh, siblings, of prospective enjoyment. So Mm -hmm. I try to schedule one or two events or trips with my family per year. And this is relatively new in the last two or three years, so that we have, even if the event itself is a disappointment at the time, although I hope it not to be, and I try to make it fun, that we have, say, six months to look forward to the trip. And then that trip happens, and then six months hence, we have another trip scheduled, so we can look forward to it and plan it, and look at photographs. And there's, I think, I really feel like it's an arbitrary number, maybe, but eighty percent of the fun is looking forward to it.
1: Okay, it's so great. I'm retrospective fun. You're anticipatory fun.
0: Sounds like it. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> but the trip always sucks. Well, no. The tri- <laughs>
0: I do my best to have the trip also be fun. No, I know, I know, I hear you. On occasion, like when I went to India, and you want to talk about diarrhea stores, and I get stuck with typhoid fever effectively in the ER in Calcutta for a week, makes for a good story. That's right. It wasn't very much fun.
1: If we locked the doors and made everyone get in a circle and spend, we would spend the night going around the room, everyone tell their poop story, you would all have one. (laughs) And it would be very fun.
0: (laughs) Uh, If you could or let's just say you had the opportunity or the obligation to assign one or three books as a gift to every graduating college senior. So some philanthropist says, all right, I'll pay for it all. One, one to three books that you can give to every graduating senior. What books come to mind? See, I
1: was all ready to say like my favorite books, but now with the graduating senior thing, you made it. Um, I would, I, the first book that came to mind would be Claudia Rankin's book Citizen, um, which came out a few years ago and is just a really important um, book for us to be reading right now. Um, but, you know, I, one of my old standbys too is my favorite, uh, Alice Monroe is my favorite writer, uh, her selected stories. My favorite book is her um, book, The Lives of Girls and Women. And, but she's just a, an amazing short story writer. I love her so much. I'm also, you know, I love so many poets. Mary Oliver is one of my favorites. And I mean, it's, it's always hard for me to think about um, for, you know, forcing one book on everyone. Um, but, but all of those would be good, good ways to go.
0: What do you like so much about Alice Munro? Wow.
1: I don't know if anyone's ever asked me. Um she is
0: <laughs> glad I got one.
1: I know. I was like, what do I love about her? She is um she's the kind of writer who I there there I read all of her stories many times and almost always um the experience is Um, Like, I'll be just going in to try to find a passage or a quote, and I find myself, like, accidentally reading the whole story again. And every single time, it takes my breath away. She's so, her craft is so, she's such a, you know, virtuosic uh, prose writer. She has um, the capacity to inhabit, you know, a sense of perception that exceeds even what we already know to be true. And when you when you see writers do this, what I mean by this is like a good writer can make make you feel what it feels like to be, you know, uh, feeling unwell in Cambodia. Right? You can be inside that physical experience. You can hear the sounds and the smells and 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 feel like what what they're thinking of that moment or that situation. And Alice Monroe and a few other really great writers can transcend beyond what you already know that experience would be like, and actually show you a deeper level of that experience. That's, you know, when we say, I, I was astonished by this, what we mean is we, we were shown a truth that we know is true, but couldn't yet articulate to ourselves until it was shown to us by that writer. Mm. And that's magic. I mean, that's a magical act. And I think it's what every writer aspires to do. It's certainly what Alice Monroe has done in pretty much every one of her short stories.
0: When you hear the word successful, who or what comes to mind for you?
1: Well, you know, I, I'm just a real believer in, um, in, 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 in many different definitions of success. You know, I, I know I'm not the first person to say this to you, that, that you know, like, this idea of like the, the, our culture has created this notion of success that has to do um, with money and position and sometimes fame, depending on, you know, what your, what your career is. Um, and I reject that. I don't think it's successful to you know, be at the top of some, some pile and have like, a sad, pathetic life. I don't think, I think it's successful to have a bunch of money and be mean to people. You know, I really take very seriously um, my values, I guess, that have to do with not just achievement and, and, and following through on the things I said I would do professionally, but like, the way we are and the way I act in the world. You know, are you kind? Are you honest? Are you generous? Um, are you op- are you are you transparent? I think transparency is something too that's like a sign of success, a mark of success. And I think you know, to me, it really um, comes down to a couple of questions: Did I did I did I set intentions and did I follow through with them? Did I say do what I said I would do? And every time I've done that in my life is when I feel like I've succeeded. And every time I have not done that in my life is when I feel like I've failed. And that's in ways large and small.
0: What is something you're currently trying to improve, (laughs) or something you're struggling with, and how are you going about it?
1: Um, Well, I have spent most of the last week cleaning my my closet like a motherfucker. Um, Because things have gotten out of control in my life. Tim, I'm a little bit like, you know, it's like, I, I, you know, how this stuff, the stuff is encroaching. And I realized it was actually like, you know, violating my psychic space. And I needed to just like, once and for all, and that's, I was feeling like a failure because I kept saying like, I have to deal with all this junk I have, you know, like the old Lego pieces that my kids don't use anymore. And the old, whatever, like this, this, pants I'll never fit into again or whatever. And I finally just like went, I was just like went through all my stuff. I even hired like these guys came and like reconstructed my closet, like physically, like you know, reconstructed my closet. And then I, um, I got it all like together, and I I brought my daughter into my closet to show it to her, and she said, "Mom, it's like Pinterest." (laughs) So I'm very proud of myself. (laughs) I'm a success. (laughs) It's like Pinterest.
0: That's, that's how it You know,
1: and if you, 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 I know you sometimes ask people like, what's the purchase under a hundred dollars or whatever? Right. That's
0: most possibly impacted your life. Okay.
1: Let me tell you guys, I didn't know this until last week. There's a thing called a boot box for your long boots and you put your long boots in them instead of draping all over the floor of your closet. And and then you put them up on the shelf. Boot box. Like Pinterest. It costs like $10.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What is something or maybe there are multiple things, uh, something absurd that you love doing.
1: Something absurd that I love doing? Yes, and
0: I'll I'll give you an example because I was asked this recently and it caught me off guard and I thought about it and I realized I have this habit of whenever I'm feeling stressed, or very often, I don't know why I do this, but I go, and I stretch my jaw. And sometimes (laughs) it's in public and I open my mouth like a yawning lion, but it could be at a bookstore and then you'll see mothers like guarding their children because I look like a lunatic. So I think that would fall into the absurd category. I think it's because I clench my teeth at night, but it certainly looks ridiculous. Uh, It doesn't have to be that odd, but is there anything absurd that you love doing that comes to mind?
1: Oh, my gosh. This is a hard one. It is. Nothing comes to mind. I do tend to be a little obsessively, like, you know, if my kids are eating, like, Skittles or M&Ms or something, which they're not generally allowed to eat so much, like, I'll have to organize them by color. (laughs) Um, But I don't think that's absurd. I think that's perfectly reasonable. (laughs) Um I mean why would you want to eat the colors out of order?
0: <laughs> makes sense. Oh no makes this is I
1: thought of something. This makes my husband crazy. So I like sandwiches. I'm a Virgo and I like things to be ordered and so sandwiches are they they they're greatly um problematic for me because you know because you might like here's my whole theory of the sandwich and I think that there are people who have a different theory but Maybe a couple of you have my theory, which is every bite should be as much like the previous bite as possible. Do you follow? Yeah. So you,
0: so you need never okay. bite.
1: So like, what if the, the there's like a clump, the clump of like tomatoes here, but then there's like some you know hummus over. It. Like everything has to be as uniform as possible. So any sandwich I'm ever given, I open it up and I immediately like completely rearrange the sandwich. <laughs> And then I close up, my husband's always like, would you stop touching your food? And I'm like, you're just jealous because I haven't done this to your sandwich. And he's like, get your hands off my sandwich. But <laughs> I, So do some of you also believe in this uniform sandwich idea? Yeah.
0: Look at this, it's like 70% of the See? audience.
1: Who knew? My...
0: <laughs> I think that's. So definitely... is that
1: absurd, though? Uh, I
0: who that's, I think it who depends. thinks that's absurd? Well, I think absurdity depends on the, the, the belief of the majority. <laughs> so apparently, with this audience, it's completely normal. That's right. Normal.
1: The audience is full of Virgos, I can see. Do you believe in astrology?
0: I would say generally I do not, uh, but I don't know anything about it. I will say anything I know about it, I've been told by other people. And so you don't
1: out. believe in something you don't know about?
0: Well, I would say generally <laughs> I have a high degree of skepticism related to astrology. Okay. I'm open to, I'm open to input, but generally uh, I'm, I'm a pretty literal uh, sort of uh, falsifiable hypothesis kind of guy with labs and blah, blah, blah. Which right. can be very boring, but that's just my hard work.
1: Yeah, no. But
0: then again, I live in San Francisco and I can get pretty far out in move territory with other stuff, which probably makes me a total hypocrite. Uh, <laughs> favorite failures. When you think of, is there any favorite failure or any failures that come to mind that looking back set the stage in some way? planted the seeds for a later success or just a fantastic failure story.
1: You know, it's it's interesting whenever you ask a writer, I guess except for like those few writers who come out of the gate at 22 and they, you know, win the National Book Award or something, um, that, you know, it's not one story. It's it's like a decades-long journey of being told you didn't do enough or we don't want you or you're not going to be included or we don't want to buy this or that or the other thing. Like I think that that um, part of being a writer, and probably in any kind of artist, you know, you you have to sort of always be hearing that something's not good enough, even if it ultimately is. When you are being told, "Okay, this is great," now revise it. This is great, now revise it. This is great, now revise it. So failure is just like part, literally part of, like I just like part of my life, or part of the vernacular, I guess. But I will say that um, that I have had a couple of experiences. Um, that were that were in retrospect kind of helpfully uh, crushing, um, and they were always they always served that purpose that I spoke about earlier of like reminding me what I was really doing and why I was really doing it, and it was reminding me to be humble and to not um, take for granted that i that I was going to be loved or that what I made was going to be loved because the thing about making art is that you have to be committed to making it even if you aren't loved, and so you have to attach your you know that that engine that drives any of us forward in the work we do it can't be connected only i mean obviously we all want to be loved me too but but it can't you know the driver of that engine cannot be that other people accept and love you and praise you. It has to be that you um, really want to do this work you really want to make this thing in the world and um and so the times early on, you know, I remember when I was in graduate school, I had a piece, you know, I was, the, the writer's success, failure stories are always so boring. It's like, you know, oh, an agent and all these agents loved that piece and they all want to see your work. And then I was like, oh, here's, you know, the first hundred pages of my novel, which were, weren't really ready to be shown yet and you know they all were like thanks but no thanks and you know i went from feeling like oh i'm, I'm they love me to the, they don't love me but and that hurt in the moment but at the time you know in retrospect i think oh that was really a great lesson because what i did then is i said to myself i will never again show an agent my work until i'm really can feel like it's ready to go and that's advice i've shared with a lot of writers you know when they say well you know how do you get an agent or what advice do you have? And my first advice is always like, make sure your work is ready to show. Yeah. You know, don't don't rush. You know, most of us rush f- for that external approval. I understand that impulse, but it's almost always the wrong impulse.
0: Yeah, I think that there is a conflict in, in many people's minds between say the, I think over romanticized say Silicon Valley notion of you know, fail fast, fail forward, if you're if if you're not embarrassed by the first version of the product you ship, you shipped it too late. Which I think does apply to certain things like software mm-hmm. in some cases. But I was talking to in this I won't mention the name because it's a private conversation, but a very successful stand up comedian and I asked him what advice he gives to novice comics. And he said, Don't move to New York or LA until you're good. Yeah. He said, get good on the smaller stages first, and then you can go play in the big leagues. But until you're ready, don't step onto the stage in the big leagues.
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And it's, it's interesting to me because I, I, I really agree with it. Like the, this message that we're hearing a lot in the last few years is like, failure is good, and failure teaches us things. And like, I believe all of that deeply. But I think that what gets lost in the translation is um, that there's a difference between failing um, and being sloppy. And expecting other people to do your work for you. And I am a re- like real old school believer in craft when it comes to stand-up you know, comedy or writing or developing software. Like actually really genuinely doing your work, apprenticing yourself to the craft of like what it takes to make that work and what it takes to make it good and you know then go forward and fail there's still plenty of room to fail out there once you know what the hell you're doing but this you know i do see this sometimes um with people who approach me where it's like they actually haven't done their work they're approaching me in this spirit of like well you know like Failure teaches us things, and I'm like, but no, you, you I'm not going to do your work for you. You've got to do it for yourself. And I'm kind of an old-school, you know, um, sort of stern in that regard, you know, that regard when it comes to um, that message about what failure means and what it can teach us.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I was, uh, was chatting with, in this case, it was a, a lawyer, very successful lawyer, who was talking about at one point <coughs> drafting some type of document for one of his professors. And the professor would say, not good enough, do it again. Not good enough, revise. And uh, he did, I think it was three or four refusals like that and requests for revision before he the, the professor actually looked at the document. And in fact, he hadn't looked at it at all. <laughs> he just wanted it to be in tip-top shape, and oh, it nice. was.
1: That's great. <laughs> but I'm not
0: saying he should, by default, do that as a teacher. but. Uh, the fact of the matter was, this, this particular person who went on to become a very good lawyer was able to dramatically improve what they delivered.
1: Yeah, well, and that's, I think that that's what we should do with ourselves, is you f- finish that first draft and say to yourself, not good enough. What's, what can I do that on that next yeah. round?
0: If you had a huge billboard, and this is more a metaphorical question than anything, but to, that you could use to get a short message question anything out to millions of people, what would you put on that billboard?
1: Hmm. Um, oh, you know what, I think it would be this thing that I learned when I was writing my first book. It would be surrender to your own mediocrity. <laughs> <laughs> <Please> <laughs> which, sounds, yeah. which sounds kind of sad, right? I mean, we're supposed to be um, you know, aspiring to our greatness. But I think that here again, this idea of humility and strength is connected. Um, Because what I learned, you know, I I, when I was writing my first book, I really felt like, okay, I'm going to try to write the great American novel. Like every writer who, you know, is like, I want to be that. I want to write the best novel that has ever been written. Even when I knew that I probably wasn't going to be able to do that, that was where I I aspired to be. I was like, um, you know, there's this American idea, right? Like that you reach for those kinds of heights. And um, I found when I was about two-thirds of the way into that, Um, endeavor, writing that book, that, that, that idea of greatness was what was actually keeping me from, from fulfilling this dream, you know, and that what I had to do was that humble thing where I say, guess what? It's true. I might be writing a mediocre book. I might be writing a book that nobody ever reads. And I just have to surrender to the truth of that. And I have to surrender to this notion that even if I'm mediocre, I'm. What matters more to me than writing a great novel is writing a novel, Mm -hmm. and that was um, a huge lesson. And it was a lesson, you know. Later, when I was thinking so much about like my hike on the Pacific Crest Trail, when I was writing Wild, you know, that was something that I learned every day. You know, I would be like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to like do this much, and then I have to do this much because this is what I can do. And and I think that when we when we Learn that, like when, it's not about it's not about so much accepting a limitation, rather than as accepting um, that by doing the best we can do that the work that that, that we have to do um, that that's the only way to get to greatness, you know, and that we aren't the judge of our own greatness. We're only the judge of like our intentions and follow through.
0: I love it. And we also take the off the performance anxiety and pressure. Yeah with this label of greatness or aspiration of greatness that ends up producing exactly the opposite, sort of a,
1: yeah. a
0: choked, overthrottled attempt that is full of fear.
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, I'm all for the ha- having those big dreams, but I do think that at a certain point you can let your dreams um, get in the way of, of the actual work you need to do.
0: What advice would you give to someone who came to you and said, I wrote a memoir, successful as a book or not that is being turned into a movie what advice would you have or what would you prepare them for
1: well first i would say be very 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 careful about who you trust to make that movie like you know that you for me having that sense of like really trusting that that my book was in the hands of people who um were good humans and who were going to be good for their word who pledged Reese Witherspoon when when she first read wild and asked me about um, you know her being the one to to bring it to the screen we had a deep long talk about what the book meant to her why she felt like she was the person to play me and to 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 essentially midwife that film as the producer into the world and also that and what you know what values she would um, hold true throughout that process and she was she was you know she followed through she 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 actually pledged to honor the book and she did and uh, I think that that's really important. It felt really uh vital to me that on you know I, I had the opposite experience in Hollywood than many many writers tell you terrible stories about what happened to them in Hollywood. And I have to say like from from Reese to the director Jean-Marc Vallée to the screenwriter Nick Hornby to the studio Fox Searchlight all of those people were were creative good humans who had like depth of character and and really um cared about not um disrespecting you know what i'd written that, that in so many ways it wasn't obviously they can't make my you know you can't have everything in the book in the movie, but that they cared about the spirit of of my book, and that mattered a lot to me and I think in my friends who have had opposite experiences it's that those all the diff- people who are, are making that movie they don't really care about what's happened um. In the book, what they care about is that product they're making as a film. And I just don't think that that ever leads to good things. And so, you know, I think that that, that kind of old fashioned, um, you know, trusting people who are, who are good for their word matters a lot.
0: So I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Reese and a lot of people who are involved with the film. Mm-hmm. That said, Hollywood is full of people who are very good at making empty promises. Yeah. So, how, what were you looking for in those meetings? What, what
1: Authenticity. Was- was it just was a spider like,
0: sense that you had or is it? Yeah, it
1: was a spider sense I had. And I really do have that. I mean, I, it's one of the areas that I would say like, that I, I actually do feel like I get a sense of people. And I got a real sense of Reese. And I could tell I trusted her. And one of the first things that I felt about Reese is she was immediately open and vulnerable with me in a way that you would never expect a movie star to be. And you know, you asked me this earlier question um, about you know, success and who, who comes to mind when I think of success. And and I think of Oprah Winfrey, and not for the reasons that we all um, think, because obviously Oprah Winfrey is wildly successful. But one of the things I never forgot is the moment I met Oprah, she, she had picked Wilde for her book. She was res- researching her book club with Wilde. And I went to her house in um, in Montecito near Santa Barbara, and uh, you know, like I was brought to this little like um, guest house, which is you know like nicer than any of our houses, but it's like, <laughs> you know, and um, and I like they do hair and makeup on me, and they get me already to see Oprah, and um, because we're shooting this show, she's interviewing me on the show, and uh, you know, it's this big kind of moment. Like I'm like, okay, I'm going to meet Oprah Winfrey, and and they tell me to go down this path through this like redwood trees, and, and at the end of this path, there's Oprah. And it's like um, getting married. <laughs> I know, I know. It's like, I walked on this little rocky thing. And, and then it's like, oh, she's like, Cheryl. you know, And she hugs me, and, and we sit down at this table. And um, the thing that struck me, and I was like, this is, this is Oprah's, this is why Oprah is successful, um, is that she, the look on her face and what I could see in her eyes is, is her vulnerability that, that I was meeting Oprah and I wanted her to like me, and Oprah was meeting me and she wanted me to like her. It wasn't like meeting the queen, even though for the record she is a queen, but um, she didn't act like one. Like she never, um, like she was still like this incredibly humble human who was really looking to have an authentic interaction with me. And I thought, you know, this is what has driven her success is that it wasn't, you know, like the thing that makes her get up and do that work that she does every day is that that ge- genuine desire to connect with people and be vulnerable and to be open to what's going to happen next. And that kind of curiosity has driven her, you know, to these great heights. And I think that, um, you know, some people, they, they forget that. Like they forget that thing that got them to where they are, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, the mark of success is staying open in that whole way. You know, and Reese Witherspoon has also done that. You know, so when I had that first conversation with Reese, and my first question to her was, why, you know, why does Wild matter to you? Like, what did, why, you know, because she said, I read it and I cried and I was like, why? What happened in your life that made you feel these, you know, that made you respond the way you did to the book? And she told me, and she told me things within five minutes of talking to her that she's never told the world. And I trusted that.
0: Well, this, this is a conversation that I uh, would love to continue for hours, mm-hmm. but we're, we're coming up on time. And perhaps this is a, a good point to ask. Is there any suggestion, ask, that you have for the people listening, anything you'd like them to consider doing, ask themselves or otherwise?
1: Well, I think I should give them all a writing assignment. Don't you think?
0: Perfect. (laughs) Yes, I do. I do think.
1: Um, I think um, one of the so one of the prompts in your book, Mm -hmm. *The Tools of Titans*, Mm -hmm. you did this list of of
0: tremendous list
1: writing prompts. What's your? you, You mentioned the darkest teacher one. Do you have a favorite one from that from that list?
0: That is that was my favorite. Yeah. Because it immediately put me on my heels. And made me think about just the juxtaposition of darkest and framing it as teacher.
1: So, yeah, your darkest teacher is, um, and and so that's the the question I would have for your listeners and people in the room, if you feel like going home and doing a writing assignment, write about uh, your darkest teacher. And that is to say, a person in your life who taught you um, something you did not want to know about humanity or the world or yourself. And um, so often, you know, those people have hurt us by teaching us those things. And so we just, like, push them away, and we put them over there. And then we never actually get to learn um, that what ends up always being a valuable lesson from them. And, um, you know, for me, so much of writing about, like, in my case, it's my father. I've written about him. In ways, you know, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't um, really write about him until I sort of worked my way to that place that I understood him as a teacher. And when you understand that somebody is your teacher, um, that you can't help but feel, like I said earlier, um, a little grateful for them, a little grateful for even the thing that you got from them that you didn't want to have. So do that.
0: That is a great assignment. Thank you for being here, Cheryl. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, Cheryl Strayed. Thank you. of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to 4hourworkweek.com. That's 4hourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Me Undies, which I'm wearing right now. I've spent the last year or so wearing underwear from these guys nearly 24 7 except when I'm having fancy time and they are the most comfortable and colorful underwear I have ever owned. If you can imagine really awesome graffiti that you've seen in cities like LA or elsewhere, then turned into a print and put onto underwear. You get the idea. There's also some weird stuff like Halloween themed camo, which I have for myself. MeUndies, designed in LA and made from sustainably sourced micro-modal. Why is this important? It's three times softer than cotton, and you feel that difference on your loins, ladies and gentlemen, if they feel great. And if you don't love your first pair of MeUndies, they'll hook you up with a new pair or a refund. Uh, What kind of person sends in used underwear back to someone? I don't know. That makes you a strange person. Maybe you should sell them in Japan or something. But if you love the product, And they make great gifts also. And for those people wondering, I go boxer briefs. If you love it, they have a subscription offer where you can save up to 33% after your first pair. So check it out, meundies.com forward slash Tim. You can see some of my favorite underwear. And uh, also plenty for the ladies. That's meundies.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by ID Commerce and Logistics. I'm asked all the time about how to scale businesses quickly. Rule number one is removing unnecessary bottlenecks that are a headache and also an emergency break on growth. For many companies, one of the first things they should outsource is inventory management and fulfillment. There are companies that do this all day long, perfectly for fast-growing companies. ID Commerce and Logistics is one such company. They focus on helping online retailers and entrepreneurs outgrow the competition by handling all types of logistics for you. They manage your inventory, pick, pack, and ship, and handle everything you could imagine so that you can focus on the things you are best at instead of all of these details under the hood. I partnered with them myself during the launch of The 4-Hour Chef so that I could focus on promoting the book, which is what I'm good at. And they ensured that things I'm not good at got done perfectly. In other words, that readers were happy with dozens of different products we needed shipped out during holiday crunch season. ID Commerce and Logistics works with many different types of businesses, including e-commerce, consumer packaged goods, subscription boxes, and dozens more. They're also integrated with top e-commerce platforms such as Shopify, my personal favorite, Magento, BigCommerce, and others, which makes the startup integration and partnership seamless. As a listener of this podcast, you can get up to ten thousand dollars of your startup fees and costs waived. That is a big discount. Just visit. Tim.blog forward slash scale. That's Tim.blog forward slash scale. Or you can go to idcomlog. That's id dot com forward slash Tim. You can go to either one. The easier one to remember is probably Tim.blog forward slash scale.